First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. I'm full of questions this morning. How many enjoy a Sunday afternoon nap? All right, good. How many are planning to take a nap this afternoon? Well, not as many. How many are planning to take a nap, raise your hands, within the next few minutes? <laughs> I thought I could trick some of The deacon raised his hand. That reminds me of a story, deacon. <laughs> there was this pastor that had a sleeping deacon. And one day he thought he would just catch this deacon asleep. And so... He very quietly said, the deacon had already dozed off, and he very quietly said to the congregation, how many of you want to go to heaven, please stand. And everybody except the deacon stood up. He had them sit down, and then he said, all of you who want to go to hell, stand up. More the deacon stood up. And he was the only one. And finally he said, Preacher, I don't know what we're voting on, but you and I are the only ones in favor of it. <laughs> I'll be careful, Brother Dennis, all right? <laughs> I'd much rather somebody take a nap in the afternoon, but if this is the only place you can get some sleep, at least you got something out of the message, right? I've pastored people who do shift work. One man said shift work is of the devil, and I believe it, Okay. And they would come into, you know, they'd work all night and they'd come into church on Sunday morning and I knew it wasn't going to take very long that they were going to be asleep. So again, I understand that, but we're going to talk about a different kind of sleep in this message as we look at these verses this morning. Now I want you to note, and I'm sure you understand, that the chapter and verse divisions that are in our Bibles were not there when Paul wrote the letter. You know, he didn't sit down and write a letter to the Thessalonians and say, okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and then start writing verses. He wrote a letter. And so these chapter and verses were added about 14 centuries after the Bible was completed. It makes it easier for reading and for reference. So 1 Thessalonians is a continuous letter. And actually, these first 11 verses of this fifth chapter really belong with the concluding verses of the fourth chapter. So what does he talk about in the fourth chapter, the concluding verses? Well, he's talking about the rapture or the catching away of the saved. He says that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Sort of makes me believe that Paul expected the Lord to return in his lifetime and for him to be caught up with the Lord during that time, during the first century. And then he says in verse 18 that the thought of the return of Jesus Christ ought to be a comfort to the children of God. 
Those of us who know Christ as Savior, it just ought to comfort our hearts. I read a quote, and in fact, I put it on Facebook, I believe, from G. Campbell Morgan, and I can't quote it exactly. I don't remember it that well, but it said something along this line. He said, the second coming of Christ, to me, is the proverbial light on the path which makes today bearable. And this life is bearable because we know that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, as Paul wrote this letter, he's not writing some theological examination of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's trying to do is to settle this church and give them something that will comfort them because they're living in days of intense persecution, bitter persecution. But what he says is going to happen in the last days, and you think about our day. He said, people will be crying peace and safety. In other words, they're going to be saying, hey, everything's all right. We're secure. Things are good for us. Things are going our way. Everything is beautiful. But he said, the world will be in spiritual darkness. Isn't our world in spiritual darkness today? Oh, our world is just, just immersed in spiritual darkness. And then he said this, some of God's people will be spiritually asleep. And we have so many professed believers, so many professed Christians today that are just spiritually asleep. You ask them what's going on, they have no idea what's going on from a spiritual standpoint. And so Paul moves from talking about the rapture and the resurrection of the saved, moves directly into talking about the day of the Lord. Now the rapture and the resurrection of the saved will precede the time of great tribulation. Now the time of great tribulation is when God brings his wrath up on the face of the earth, up on an unbelieving and disobedient world. And listen, if you're not saved this morning, you don't want to be alive in that day. You don't want to be on this earth in that day. You want the Lord to take you out before that day. And these things, of course, culminate with the Lord coming with his saints and setting up his millennial kingdom upon the face of the earth. You say, why are you telling all this? Because I believe there are three things that Paul tells us that we need to do in these last days as we look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are this, we need to wake up, we need to dress up, and we need to build up. And we're going to look at these three things as we consider this text and as we consider the title of this message, the question, are we asleep in the day? Now, first of all, we need to wake up from spiritual apathy. If you are in that condition today, you just need to wake up from spiritual apathy. You say, well, what is apathy? Apathy is when we don't care what's going on in the world about us. We just say, I'm going to live my life. I'm not going to worry. We don't care what's going on in the world. We don't care what's going on in the church. They said, somebody put out a questionnaire one time that said, what is the number one problem in our world today? Ignorance or apathy? And somebody answered and said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> the two greatest problems that we face. It's easy, spiritually, folks, to get in a rut. But you know what a rut is? It's just a grave with the ends knocked out of it. So we need to be careful spiritually about getting in a rut. Paul says in verse 6, Therefore let us not sleep. He's talking spiritually. He's not talking about lying down in bed at night. He's talking about spiritual sleep as do others. Look at verses 4 and 5 at what he says. But ye brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of the light and the children of the day. Look at this. We are not of the night nor 
of darkness. We're children of the light. Paul uses the contrast between light and darkness to talk about these two points of view as we consider the spiritual condition of the world. Prior to our salvation, we were subjects of the kingdom of darkness. Prior to their salvation, these in Thessalonica were subjects of the kingdom of darkness. Who is the ruler over the kingdom of darkness? The prince of darkness, Satan himself. And so Jesus said to some at one time, you're your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. That's how Jesus describes Satan. That's who ruled over us. That's who reigned over us before we came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. By the way, what was the condition of the world prior to Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 and after Genesis chapter 1 verse 1? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was or became without form and void, and the scripture said darkness was upon the face of the deep. I personally believe that darkness came about with the casting down of Lucifer out of heaven and to this earth and the prince of darkness was upon this earth. There is a vast difference between darkness and light. I was reading some of the qualities of light and the, the one that I like the most is that light is self-evidencing. What do you mean by that? Light is self-evidencing. Well, you don't have to tell somebody it's light. You don't have to tell somebody the light's on. The light is just there. The light is its own evidence that it is light. We know the difference between light and darkness. So in the scripture, darkness is a picture of sin. Darkness is a picture of separation from God. Darkness is a picture of ungodliness. On the other hand, light is a picture of godliness. It is a picture of holiness. First John chapter 1 verse 5, what does John say? It says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John says there's not even a speck. You can't find a speck of darkness in God. God is total light. He is total holiness. He is total righteousness. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So God and Jesus are one and the same and they are total light. And in John chapter 1, this is the gospel of John, chapter 1 verse 5, John says this about Jesus, and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. That word comprehended has the idea of perceiving, of laying hold on. Jesus came into this world. Light itself came into this world. The light of man came into this world and the darkness of this world could not perceive it. If you don't believe that, just read the first chapter of the book of Romans beginning in about verse 18 when it says, when men recognized that there was a higher power, there had to be a creator, what did they do? They began to worship bugs and crawling things and birds and finally began to worship mankind and went into all kind of lasciviousness and gross sin. But they would not acknowledge God. Light came into the world, but the darkness could not perceive it. We sing a song. I thought we might sing it this morning. We didn't, but that's okay. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. And what's the next line? The light of the world is Jesus. He is the light. Our world is in darkness today. Our world needs light today. And the only way for our world to have light today, folks, is to know Jesus Christ. Amen. But there's a danger. There's a danger. Many who are believers, who profess to be believers, in the light, they're spiritually asleep. Now, I'll probably get in trouble for telling this. 
No, I will get in trouble for telling this. My wife can go to sleep with the light on. Amen. I have a, a lamp beside my side of the bed and I'll have the light on. And she goes to sleep, and I'm sitting there, well, should I turn the light off? And she tells, I'll ask her, you know, I'll wake her up and ask her. <laughs> That's always nice to do, isn't it? <laughs> Is this light bothering you? <laughs> I was asleep, what do you think? <laughs> no, it's not bothering me. Okay, go back to sleep. But some people can sleep with the light on. And sadly, there are many of God's people who can be spiritually asleep during this time of Light, when light is in the world, and we ought to be sharing the light with other people. There are God's people who have hung a do not disturb sign on their heads and on their hearts when it comes to the things of God. Don't bother me, Lord. They're content just to have their ticket to heaven. Yeah, I've used this term before, but I think there's some folks who, uh, that's all they want. Salvation to them is a holy fire escape. You know, it's a get out of hell free card. That's all I want. I just want to escape hell. I don't want to serve the Lord. I don't want to be faithful to Him. I want to just escape hell. These folks are content to come to church. They have no problem coming to church. They're content to sit when we sit and to stand when we stand and to sing when we sing, to watch, to hear. And they see people all around them. And yet they're unaware of where we are on God's eternal timetable, folks. We are nearing the end. I think part of the problem, I'm going to blame part of the problem on preachers. There's a lot of Psalmonex type sermons being delivered from pulpits today. Sermons that people just sort of say, well make me feel good preacher and so preachers try to be popular with the people they pastor and so they preach feel good sermons and people God's people are being lulled to sleep by these Psalmonex type sermons. Well, we don't need lollipop sermons and we don't need Psalmonex type sermons. I heard about a grandfather clock one time, struck 13. Little boy said it's later than it's ever been before. Well, folks, it's later than it's ever been before. Amen. On God's timetable, we're getting close to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus used two Old Testament events to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus. He said, as it was in the days of Noah, and he said, as it was in the days of Lot. What were the days of Noah like? Well, the days of Noah were like this. The people were so wicked, so sinful, that God said, I'm going to send a flood, and I'm going to wipe it all out. I am going to destroy wicked humanity because they have become so evil. What were the days of Lot like? Well, where did Lot live? He lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Lot was a righteous man. We know that. The Bible tells us that. But Lot, there in Sodom, had gotten so chummy with the world. Scripture says he sat in the gate of the city. I usually say he was on the city council. You can't be on the city council and stand for Christ, I don't think, in many cities. And you certainly couldn't have in Sodom. But Lot was sitting there in the gate of the city, and he had no influence. He had lost his witness. He'd lost his testimony. And that things in Sodom were, and Gomorrah were so perverted and were so sinful that God rained fire and brimstone out of heaven and destroyed those two cities and the cities around them. But you know what? There's a common thread in both instances. The days of Noah and the days of Lot. The days of Noah, there was a family that was preserved in the days of Noah, and that was Noah's family. There was a family that was preserved in the days of Lot, and that was Lot and his two daughters. 
But here's a beautiful picture of the rapture of the saved. It is both a reward and a rescue. God rewarded Noah. Noah was faithful. Noah was right and just in his generations, the scripture says. And God rewarded him and put him and his family in the ark and they were preserved from the flood. Lot was rescued. God just got Lot out of Sodom just in time. And he said, don't look back. And of course, we know what happened to Lot's wife. But it was both a rescue and a reward. Listen, for some of us today, the coming of Christ is going to be a reward. We're looking forward to it. We want, we're praying even so, come Lord Jesus, just like Jesus said to pray. We can't wait for the Lord to return. And then for some of God, folks, it's going to be a rescue. He's going to, you know, the scripture talks about being saved yet so as by fire. I think that's the way some are going to be rescued out of here at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In both cases, the time is coming when God is going to judge humanity again. God's alarm clock's going off. God's saying it's time to wake up. And you know what some of God's folks are doing? You know what that is? If you have a snooze alarm. I don't have a clock with a snooze alarm. I've got a phone with a snooze alarm, folks. And some of God's people are just rolling over and they're hitting the snooze button. They're going back to sleep and God's telling us to wake up from our apathy and get busy with his business. So the first thing we need to do is wake up. This next thing we need to do is dress up in our spiritual armor. You look at verses 8 through 10 in our text. In Ephesians 6, Paul named six pieces of armor. They're displayed right down here. And by the way, I didn't preach this because she did that and she didn't do that because she knew I was going to preach this. But they're displayed right here on the table in front of me. But right here, he named the breastplate and the helmet. The breastplate and the helmet. But first of all, he says something. What does he say? He said, let us be sober. You know what that word sober means? Just what you think it means. It means sober. It means watchful. It means serious-minded. There should be a sense of seriousness. And that doesn't mean we have to go around with a frown on our face all the time. But there ought to be a sense of seriousness about us when we realize the day that we're living in. The day of the Lord's coming. The day of the end of this world. This is in contrast to somebody that's drunk. You know, a drunk isn't serious most of the time, and he's not watchful most of the time. So the Lord says through his word that we are to be sober. So we're going to look at these two pieces of armor with sobriety in mind, okay? With the idea of being serious-minded in mind. By the way, did you notice anything in the description? Let's read these verses. Description of this armor that relates to any other verse in the word of God. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Did you catch that? Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now remain these three. He says faith, hope, and charity. And that word charity is love. And so we're to put on faith, hope, and love. See, it is our faith in Christ that will keep us sober. If we truly believe, and I think a lot of times I've written an article about God consciousness. If we truly believe that we serve a God whose eye is on us constantly, who watches us and who watches over us, and that we're involved in a spiritual warfare, folks, we can't help but remain sober. We can't help but see the reason to remain sober, to remain serious-minded. See, this world makes men drunk, makes people drunk. 
drunk with passion, drunk with pride, drunk with fulfilling the fleshly desires. The world makes men drunk, but we must protect our hearts. That's what the breastplate did. The breastplate went over the chest. It protected the heart. It had a piece in the back, and they were held together with the leather straps, but it protected the heart, and we need to protect our hearts by putting on the breastplate of righteousness. By the way, it's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. How do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? By faith in Christ. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we put on the breastplate of righteousness. A true self-sacrificing love for God also will protect our hearts. Now, it'll also hinder us when we are tempted to turn away from God. It'll hinder us when we are tempted to turn to apostasy. I believe there are people who think I'm saved, I must love God. That's the attitude. Well, I'm saved, so I must love God. They may have a fondness for God, but they may not have a self-sacrificing love for God. Our hearts, and Vince Havner called it holy heartburn, our hearts need to be inflamed, folks, with love for God. Such great love for Him that I am willing to give my, the word that Translated love here is the, the word agape, which means a self-sacrificing love. Such great love for God that I'm willing to give and give up of myself to be able to serve Him. It's what the Bible calls honeymoon love. First love. What was the problem at Ephesus? The church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. Thou hast left thy first love. They'd turn their back. They, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but a young man and a young woman get married. In the first year or two, they just so in love. Right? Neither of them can do anything wrong. They're just in love. But after a few years of marriage, and this is what happens in a lot of marriages, they begin to take each other for granted. And the honeymoon love grows cold. And he says, or she says, you don't love me the way you did when we first got married. No, it's just that the flame needs to be rekindled, okay? Believers in these last days need the same kind of love for God that believers in the first century churches had for God. And that was a honeymoon type of love. That was a self-sacrificing love. True, fervent love for God and the things of God will keep us watchful. And we must protect our heads. We must protect our minds. Do you realize, and I hope you young people, I want you young people to really get this, your mind is the battleground. Folks, our mind's the battleground. We think, well, I get out here in the world when I'm tempted to do this and, and my friends and, and that's the battle. No, your mind, you will decide whether you're going to serve God or not. You will decide in your mind whether you're going to be faithful to God or not. You will make the decision there in your heart and in your mind, I will do this thing that God says not to do or I won't do what God says to do. That's where our battle is. That's where our decisions are made. Look over to the book of Jude for just a moment. In the third verse of the book of Jude, Jude tells us that we should earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend has the idea of agonizing over the faith. Agonizing over the faith. And the reason he tells us to agonize over the faith, over the truth, he says in verse 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares. One comment said it this way, there are certain men who have wormed their way in. 
But there are certain men crept unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be people who pretend to be God's people. Satan's very wily. And Satan will try to convince you that, yes, this is of God, this is not of God. And he will worm his way in to your decisions. See, the helmet doesn't save us. It's the helmet of salvation. The helmet doesn't save us. It is faith in Jesus Christ by which we're saved. But the helmet is our knowledge. The helmet is our glad expectation. That's why it says the hope of salvation. And it, we're not hoping that we'll be saved one day if we'll trust Christ. What we're saying is when we, the Bible talks about hope of salvation, I know I'm saved. I'm going to go and be with the Lord. I just don't know when it is yet. Amen. It's a glad expectation. It's the knowledge, as it says here in verse 9, for God hath not appointed. This is one of the reasons I believe the Bible to teach that we're going to be raptured out of here before the great tribulation, where God hath not appointed us to wrath. You and I who are saved are not appointed to wrath, the scripture says, but he goes on to say, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. A year ago, you remember a year ago, we're in the height of COVID. I guess it was a year ago today, or maybe a year ago next week, the second Sunday in May, we finally got back to meeting in the building. Y'all remember that? But a year ago, people were asking me about the end times, about the Antichrist. Is this it? About 666. People had a lot of questions. Some were even afraid that, well, maybe did we miss the rapture, you know, as it talks about in 2 Thessalonians. That's why that letter was written by Paul, because somebody had written a false letter to the church at Thessalonica and said, you missed the rapture. So some people were worried about that. Is quarantine and empty store shelves and all of these things a part of the Antichrist scheme? Some were even predicting a date for Christ's return, and there have been a lot of folks who have tried to do that. And you know what? They've, they've just always been wrong. William Miller, a Baptist preacher in New York, predicted Jesus would return October 22, 1845. Thousands of people in white robes walked to the top of the hills waiting to be caught up. Guess what? Jesus didn't show up. Edgar Wisnant, a former NASA engineer, wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. It sold 4.5 million copies. He was wrong. Radio Bible preacher Harold Camping predicted Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. His radio ministry received millions in donations, but Jesus didn't follow his plans. See, the bottom line is that when anyone tells you a date that the Lord's going to return, you can just mark him down as a false prophet right there because Jesus said no man knows. Jesus is coming back and no man knows. We will not miss the rapture, folks. If you're saved, you will not miss the rapture. First John chapter 3, verse 2, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 28, he says, where the carcasses are gathered, there will the eagles be. Now he's making, giving us an illustration. You see, vultures flying around in a circle. What do you know is down below? Something dead, right? Well, Jesus is not calling us something dead and himself a vulture, but he's saying just like that you know when you see that, 
that when he comes, we're going to be right where he is. We won't have to go to where he is. We need to protect our heads because Jesus said, there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, I tell you what, so many were asking me questions a year ago about all the things that I mentioned. I almost got caught up in it myself. It's real easy to get caught up in those things. Put on the helmet of the glad expectation of salvation, of the hope of salvation, and let that secure your mind. Let the breastplate of love and of faith secure your heart. You got faith, hope, and love, these three. And then we need to build up our spiritual allies, and I'm almost finished. Our words can either hurt or they can heal, folks. Words can build up and words can tear down. This old proverb says, He that thinks by the inch and speaks by the yard deserves to be kicked by the foot. I like that. We need to be careful about the things we say. You look over to the third chapter of the book of James. We're not going to read these ten verses, but I'm going to mention a couple of verses out of this third chapter. James chapter 3. And look at verses 9. Well, let's go back to verse 8. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's what you got in your mouth. That's what the tongue is. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith, listen, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. And then he says in verse 10, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. The same mouth that comes in here and sings these songs of praise to God, that lifts up the name of Jesus, will be tempted to go out of here and use that same mouth, that same tongue, to talk about somebody else, maybe a brother or sister in Christ. And the Word of God says that ought not to be. See, verse 11 first instructs us as we read it, wherefore comfort yourselves together. That word comfort means to encourage. It's the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. He comes alongside of us, in effect, puts his arm around us, encourages us, lifts us up. And we are to do that to one another. He says, comfort one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, calls God the God of all comfort. The God of all encouragement. God will encourage our hearts. Listen, everybody is struggling today, right? If you're not struggling, I wish you'd raise your hand because I want to get close to you, all right? Everybody's struggling today. Struggling with something. And everybody needs encouragement. And everybody needs a pat, okay? You know what that is. That's praise, appreciation, and thanks. Everybody needs a little pat on the back from time to time. The Word of God says we ought to be comforting, encouraging, lifting up one another. And then it says edify one another. You know what edify means? We talked about that word. It means to build up. Just like you build up a house on the foundation that's already been poured. It's used three times, only three times in the New Testament right here. And in Romans 14, 19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. Follow the things that will build up a brother or sister in Christ. Build each other up. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, Paul said all things are lawful unto me, but all things edify not. Not everything's going to build me up. But we need to build one another up. That means promoting the good of the whole church by promoting the work of grace in one another. Matthew Henry said this, and I like this. He said, and it is the duty of every one of us to study that which is for the edification of those with whom we converse, 
to please all men for their real profit. William Barclay said this, One of our highest duties is the duty of encouragement. It is easy to laugh at a man's ideal. It is easy to pour cold water on their enthusiasm. The world is full of discouragers. Amen? But he didn't say amen. I said that, okay? Sort of expecting an amen. I think the world's full of discouragers. But we have a divine calling to encourage one another. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ and lift them up to God. Anyone can tear down. It takes no special skill to tear down. One of the things that used to upset our dad when I was growing I loved to take things apart. Not real good at getting them back together again. But I love to tear them apart. I'm sort of like the father that's girl's boyfriend came and stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed and finally she told her boyfriend, she said, my dad likes to take things apart to see why they won't go. And the boyfriend left. Well, we have enough discouragers today. We have enough people trying to take people apart today. The world will do that to us. We need builders. Well, in closing, I'm going to admit to you that I wake each day with a snooze alarm. Now, I don't understand the sense of setting the alarm 30 minutes before you intend to get up and lying there in bed and reaching over every so often. You know, but I do it. I think I just want to sort of ease into being awakened for the day, you know. But folks, for spiritually hitting the snooze button is just someone's way of saying, not right now, Lord. When I get ready, when I want to get busy, Lord, I'll change tomorrow. And you know what the old saying about tomorrow is? Tomorrow never comes. Today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday, right? Lord, I'll change tomorrow. Lord, I'll start sharing my faith tomorrow. Lord, I'll get serious about serving you tomorrow. Lord, I'll start living for you tomorrow. As we close, I'm going to ask you a very serious question. I've asked a lot of questions. Some of them silly. This one's serious. Do you believe we're in the last days? Amen. Do you believe that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent? Amen. That just means it's coming real soon. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that people without Jesus Christ are lost and are going to hell? Amen. Ooh, that was weak. Well, they are, whether we believe that or not. We need to get a sense of that. That that person I talked to, that person, maybe that upset me, may be lost. Maybe that's what they need is Jesus as their Savior. Maybe that person I'm behind in traffic, or that person that's in front of me in the line at the place everybody goes, Walmart. Maybe that's a lost, maybe that cashier that wasn't as friendly as I thought she ought to be or he ought to be. Maybe they're lost. And they need Jesus. See, if we really believe that Jesus is coming back. Jesus said that we're to pray for his return. And somebody asked me one time, will that make the Lord return any sooner? Not necessarily. Here's what it'll do. It'll keep us aware that Jesus is coming back. And keep us aware of the need of people. If we believe those things, folks, we need to wake up from our spiritual apathy. 
we need to dress up in that spiritual armor because we're going out into a warfare, not to a Sunday school picnic. And we need to be busy building each other up, encouraging one another. Not that we have a problem with that here. I think we have one of the greatest groups of people to build one another up and encourage one another, but we need to do it even more as we get nearer to the day of the Lord's return.